1: happening now? Donald Trump defiant as he leaves his civil fraud trial in New York after hearing a key defense witness try to poke holes in the case against him. Now the former president is preparing to take the witness stand again. Why this time will be different. Also tonight, some of Trump's GOP rivals hit the campaign trail in Iowa and New Hampshire after their fourth debate without him got fiery. We're going to break down the lines of attack and Nikki Haley's response to being the top target. Plus smoke in the air over Gaza and fierce fighting on the ground. Israeli forces intensifying their hunt for top leaders of Hamas two full months after the brutal attack on Israel that launched the war. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Pamela Brown and you're in the Situation Room. And we begin this hour with Donald Trump's return to his high stakes New York civil fraud trial. The former president spending a full day in the courtroom as an accounting expert testified for the defense. Let's bring in CNN chief legal affairs correspondent Paula Reid. Paula, how is uh, Trump's team making its case here?
2: There's so much on the line right now for the former president. This case strikes at the heart of his identity as a businessman and threatens his ability to even do business in the state of New York. Now the judge has already found him liable for fraud for inflating the values of his properties now they're focused mostly on penalties and a few other charges but Trump he doesn't have to attend any of this but when he does it brings all this attention to whatever is happening in the courtroom and today a NYU professor an accounting professor testified in support of the defense. And he testified that people can come up with different values for the same properties and that banks were not relying on Trump's property valuations when they lent him money. So this witness is is really especially helpful for the defense. And this is going to be the last defense witness before Trump is expected to take the stand again on Monday.
1: And you're also following this major development in Trump's push to dismiss the federal January 6th case against him, right? So tell us about the developments today on that.
2: Yeah, in New York, we're talking about a civil case. What's on the line is significant. It's money, it's his business, but something far more significant coming down the pipeline here in D.C. In March, he faces the first of two federal criminal trials. So today, he appealed a decision by the judge overseeing that case who found that you're not immune from prosecution just because you were president on January 6th. Now, presidential immunity is certainly an important question, but the real issue here is delay. And the former president's lawyers are hoping uh, that this can get the case put on hold while this larger question, which could even go to the Supreme Court, is
1: being litigated. All right. Thanks so much, Paul Reed. Stick around. We have more to discuss with our legal and political analysts. So, Elliot, I want to first go to you for just the context here because you have Trump's attorneys arguing, quote, a stay is mandatory and automatic. Are they right? How likely is a pause in this case?
3: Uh, You sort of have to pause a case uh, on appeal, particularly where you're talking about the rights of of the party to go to trial. Here's the thing. If you were to appeal the case... Uh, and not stay it, he could go to trial in a criminal trial that a future court could say should have never happened in the first place. So it's very common to pause the lower one while the appeal plays out. Now look, it it appears that the appeals court wants to move very quickly. I would Mm -hmm. think they would have an interest too, because I think they read the same newspapers we do, they know there's an election coming, they know the stakes, and I would think they would try to move the case along.
1: All right, so Gloria, on that, you know, if you look at just the polling itself, it, it doesn't seem like the indictments to date have hurt Trump politically, no, right? So, so it no. begs the question, uh, you know, why is he trying so hard to delay the trial? Politically, why? Well,
4: first of all, he doesn't want to be on trial during the campaign, because what if he's convicted? What if he's convicted of a felony? We've had some polls that show us that people could change their minds if the person who's running for president is, is a convicted felon. So I don't think he wants that. But the whole notion is they want to delay it until after the election, because he figures, well, if he wins the presidency, he can fire Jack Smith, and he can get rid of these cases once and for all. So there's, you know, there's a reason to wanting to delay this. If you think you're
1: going to be the next president, and if this the Supreme Court does take up this case, right. as it very well may, Paula, let's talk about what that could look like. As you just heard, Ellie say, like there's a there's a an appetite perhaps to expedite this but how much could the case be delayed potentially here what are we looking at well certainly the court of appeals and the supreme court would be mindful
2: of the timeline here it's highly unlikely particularly the supreme court that, that is you know sensitive uh, to the increased polarization uh, of that particular entity that they don't necessarily want to delay this any more than they have to so it is likely that they would move as quickly as possible but it takes time to schedule arguments have them heard appeal to a higher court I think that this could potentially be delayed months, but it's interesting the judge overseeing this, Judge Tanya Chutkin, she's made it clear, she is not moving this case. It will have to be a higher court and it's rare that you're a federal judge commit so strongly to a specific date.
1: All right, so let's talk about another case. That would be the New York civil fraud trial. Uh, Trump showed up today, he didn't have to show up. He is expected to take the stand again. But Elliot, as you know, this time is different. There's a gag order in place. His attorney has come out to say he's still going to take that stand despite her advice not to testify because of that gag order. What risk is he taking with this? Uh,
3: Look, any time a defendant, a party, not a defendant takes a stand, they run the risk of stepping in it and getting themselves in trouble. Number one, he could contradict prior statements that he's made. Number two, he could just say something in response to a question that he's not prepared for that, that has huge consequences for him. There are two $250 million on the line, potentially, um, the loss of his business. And so uh, making a mistake on the stand could be particularly bad. Also, there's still the question you you referenced, uh, Pam, the gag order. There's still the risk of the the former president going out and saying something that oversteps the bounds of what he's allowed to say. And he could get himself in trouble there. So he is, it's very fraught uh, with peril. But look, they have already found, the court has found that there was fraud this is the best shot he's got. And so he sort of has to take the stand here, roll the dice and see what happens.
1: He's certainly been taking advantage yeah. of the media attention when he walks outside of the courthouse, right? Oh, Speaking it's a to a campaign report- rally. Exactly. I mean, that right. that's really how he is using these appearances, right? As a campaign rally to get his messaging out. And he's repeated a, a very a familiar message. Let's listen to what he said today.
5: We have a very corrupt country. We have a very corrupt political system. And they're doing this to hurt a political Opponent, this is third world country stuff, this is banana republic stuff,
6: and it's a shame. It's a shame what's happening to our country.
1: You know, Gloria, we covered the the Robert Mueller Russia investigation. We heard very similar rhetoric there. Um, But the bottom line is a lot of his supporters believe that. They really believe that he is the victim, right? How much does that work in his favor? Well, I think it
4: works in his favor a lot. By the way, I don't think he violated the gag order uh, doing that. All he did was say we have a corrupt country and a corrupt political system. That didn't violate the gag order. It works. And what he's trying to do is push all these trials together and paint one big portrait. And the portrait is of the, the former president being a victim of the current president who is manipulating according to Donald Trump, manipulating the Justice Department, manipulating attorneys general to persecute him because he's done nothing wrong.
3: And I think it's really important to note here, he is standing outside a state court in New York talking about the federal government. Right. He's conflating two different heads. jurisdictions, to different prosecutors. People believe it. They lump it under one roof and assume that it's one vast conspiracy to take down the president. These are totally different jurisdictions. Exactly. He's, he's made president the claim. President Biden
1: would have no
5: yeah. no nothing what's happening to do in the state of New York. and, that's yeah. it. and Biden
2: has his own special counsel what? investigating him as well. And he's also right. made the
3: claim that, 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 that the Justice Department in Washington is staffing, uh, putting personnel on this case. They are lies, and he is pushing them, and people buy it. People buy right. it. Right. They yeah.
4: think it's one one big picture of the present former president being victimized, no matter what it is or where it is. Yeah. And and Joe Biden is the
1: instigator of all of this. And, and that messaging is resonating with Absolutely. his supporters, who like Absolutely. you said, believe it. All right, thank you all so much. Appreciate that analysis. Just ahead, Donald Trump's Republican presidential rivals engage in some of their most contentious fights yet. How their heated debate impacts the race as they head back to the campaign trail.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
5: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta,
3: CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, lately we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern.
6: That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned.
3: Listen to Chasing Life wherever
7: you get your podcasts.
1: Tonight, Donald Trump's rivals for the GOP presidential nomination are picking up where they left off during their fiery fourth debate. As CNN's Jessica Dean reports, multiple candidates are hitting the campaign trail hours after their latest faceoff, Without the former president.
8: As former President Donald Trump appeared Thursday in a New York courtroom,
9: this is a witch
8: The Republican frontrunners' rivals for the GOP nomination spread out across Iowa and New Hampshire following their debate on Wednesday night. I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. <laughs> Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley says all the attacks aimed at her mean one thing. I mean, you look, last night it was it was very clear, we're surging in the polls. Every one of those guys sees it, and they showed it. With Haley showing signs of momentum in the GOP primary, the former South Carolina governor found herself fending off a barrage of criticism. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis accused Haley of opposing a bill in South Carolina to require people use public and school bathrooms based on their sex at birth.
3: She killed that bill, and she bragged that she killed that bill. I don't think men should be going into little girls' bathrooms.
4: Ron has continued to lie because he's losing. When I was governor, 10 years ago, when the bathroom situation came up, I, we had maybe a handful of kids
8: that were dealing with an issue. And I said, we don't need to bring government into this. It marked one of several clashes over cultural issues as DeSantis and Haley battled for the support of evangelical voters crucial in the Iowa caucuses, now less than 40 days away. Haley also saw herself the target of personal attacks from entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy.
3: Nikki, I don't have a woman problem.
6: You have a corruption problem. This is a woman who will send your kids to die.
3: So she can buy a bigger
1: house. Governor Haley, would you like to respond? No.
4: It's not worth my time to respond to him.
8: (laughs) Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie stepping in to defend Haley after one attack from Ramaswamy.
3: So reject this myth that they've been selling you, that somebody had a cup of coffee stint at the U.N. and then makes eight million bucks after, has real foreign policy experience.
10: And Nikki and I disagree on some issues. But I'll tell you this, I've known her for 12 years, which is longer than he's even started to vote in a Republican primary. (laughs) And while we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting her. So I'm going to take this. The fifth guy.
8: But Christie did not spare Haley or any of the other candidates on stage for not speaking out more forcefully against Donald Trump. It was announced today CNN will be hosting two GOP debates in the lead up to the first two contests in this primary. So on January 10th, uh, that will happen at Drake University in Iowa, just days before the caucus is there. And then on January 21st at St. Anselm in New Hampshire, just days before the New Hampshire primary. And Pamela, for these debates, uh, candidates must get 10%, at least 10% in three qualifying polls, either national polls or those state polls in the state in which uh, they will be running and be holding those debates. And so far, are. former President Donald Trump, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley uh, have hit those 10 percent marks in three different polls, Pam.
1: All right, Jessica Dean, thanks so much. Let's bring in our political experts now to digest all of this. So, Jamie when I to go to you first. Um, you know, the majority of the candidates once again avoided taking on Donald Trump, and Chris Christie, for his part, blasted them for that. Let's take a listen to what he said.
10: The fifth guy who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here. He's the one who, as you just put it, is way ahead in the polls. And yet, I've got these three guys who are all seemingly to compete um, with, you know, Voldemort, he or shall not be named. They don't want to talk about it.
1: And as Christy also pointed out, Trump has no problem
11: attacking them. Right, look, attacking is Donald Trump's superpower. He's always done it, it works for him. And and let's face it, if you look at the numbers, it's working. Chris Christie says he doesn't have the guts to show up. Other times he's called him a coward. But Trump is going to stay away because it will raise the level of these other candidates. He's just too far ahead not to do it. And he's always going to attack them.
1: Yeah. And, and what about them not attacking, besides Christie, of course, not going after Trump? Look,
11: it's still Jared Kushner. Remember, once said that uh, Donald Trump had hijacked the Republican Party. He's right. They did. And, and Ron DeSantis knows that. And Nikki Haley knows that. And they want, they're hoping, despite what happens with the polls, they keep hoping that if they don't go after Trump, maybe
1: some of those voters will go with him. Let's talk about Nikki Haley, because in what could be the clearest sign of her rise, uh, she was the center of attention last night, right? And not just from Vivek Ramaswamy, who clearly has a thing, (laughs) obsession. Um, (laughs) You know, and and she noted that, you know, she is the one, according to the polls, who could actually beat President Biden um, the most compared to the other candidates. How concerned should Democrats be? Well,
12: I think to what Jamie just said, I would be more concerned if uh, Trump wasn't 40 points ahead of the field in most national polls and even some of these state polls. I think it'll be interesting to see, though. I mean, one of the things um, with Nikki Haley, I mean, she held her own beautifully. She got she used her time well It'll be interesting to see how she does in Iowa and sort of slingshot into South Carolina. And can she keep that momentum going? I'll tell you, as a Democrat though, I, I thought last night was a great night for Democrats. I wish every general election voter was watching because the chaos in general on the stage and people actually booing when Chris Christie was trying to tell the truth about Donald Trump, that speaks volumes to where the core of the Republican party is.
1: This is your party.
6: Well, look, I- I watched last night. Haley had a good night. I thought Chris Christie had a superb night. I mean, his smackdown of Ramaswamy, uh, you know, his going after uh, DeSantis for not answering the questions directly, his calling out the fact that they need to go after Trump. Uh, he, he scored there, too. He was just on target last night. Uh, and I, said, I think Haley did well as well. But uh, but they need to take on Donald Trump. They all know that. I mean, I run for office many times, and I was always in the lead. I expected my opponents to attack me. They need to tear me down. They need to tear down Trump. They're not doing it.
12: You know, that's. Other than the, Christie. But that's been the common wisdom, and I'm just not so sure. I mean, look at the way Nikki Haley has done this. She has been critical of him without saying his name, as Christy pointed out. But she's also the only one who's actually, she's now making some gains in the, in the polls. And the way that DeSantis has been doing it is not working, and it hasn't really been working. Um, for Chris Christie, a little bit in New Hampshire, but I'm just not sure. I mean, having gone up against Donald Trump in 2016, I can tell you, it is very hard to just do the direct attacks, yeah. particularly given you know that he uses every but moment to-
6: I hope it works for Haley, but, <laughs> but she's still down you know, major du- double digits. Yeah. So I, again, I, I've done a lot of campaigns and I found you have to take people on frontally and directly. Uh, maybe it's different with Trump, but what they're doing right now simply isn't working, even though I, I desperately hope that either Haley or Christie can break through the pack.
1: Well, and it's interesting because Donald Trump kind of gave them an opening uh, with his comment about being a dictator for one day, right? Um, and we've gotten some reaction from Republicans on the Hill and so forth uh, to that comment. Here's what the House Foreign Affairs Chairman Mike McCall had to say. It's entertainment. And, you know, you, we've been around uh, him long enough. It's entertaining. I think he's he is an executive that does make decisions and gets things done. I mean, I think the comparison, um, I mean, I don't think you'd see the world on fire the way it is if he were in the
3: White House. I I think he projected strength.
1: But The bottom line is, Jamie, is that Trump has shown his authoritarian tendencies time and time again. Look, this is exactly why it's Donald Trump's party, because
11: that's the way they stay in power, that's the way they make money, or they're scared of him. But look, publicly, yes, that's exactly what they're saying. But privately, each and every one of them knows, two words, January 6th, that is a day he tried to overthrow an election. He tried to seize power. Why not think he'll do it again?
1: Right, and that's that's sort of the the follow-up question is, should this really be downplayed as just entertainment? He's just joking. We've seen the Take him at his word. (laughs) Take him at his word. All right, on that note, thank you all very much. Appreciate it. Coming up, new information about shots fired in front of a synagogue in upstate New York. Plus, we'll have an update from the war zone in the Middle East, as Israel is claiming new success in taking down members of Hamas. There is breaking news out of upstate New York, where shots were fired near a synagogue. Police revealing what the suspect apparently said during that incident. CNN's Polo Sandoval is working this story, so what do we
13: know at this point, Polo? Pamela, though no injuries were reported, New York Governor Kathy Hochul strongly condemning the actions of a 28-year-old Albany man, uh, especially because of what this, uh, what police believe this stands for. According to what police believe in this investigation so far is that that 28-year-old man took a shotgun and fired two times outside of Temple Israel, a synagogue just west of downtown Albany, earlier this afternoon. Again, nobody hurt. But when you hear from Police Chief Eric Hawkins, uh, he says that the suspect shouted Free Palestine, during the incident before attempting to flee, dropping the weapon and then eventually being taken in by police without any further incident. The FBI, ATF leading this investigation right now, possible weapons charges, but I want you to hear the exchange between Chief Hawkins and reporters that really tells you about how police are approaching this and why they believe this was a hate crime.
10: Did he say anything
4: about the Jewish faith, or about Israel, or about anything that would be like a hate
3: crime. We,
5: we, we were told by uh, responding officers that he made a comment, uh, "Free Palestine."
3: Is that the reason uh, the FBI is involved in this situation? Yes, that is, that is part of the reason.
13: Yes. So, is it being investigated as a, as a hate crime? Yes. And with tonight being the first night of Hanukkah, Governor Hochul ordering an increase in patrols at Jewish centers throughout the state, certainly at synagogues as well, in light of the recent rise in anti-Semitic attacks that we've witnessed since October 7th, Pamela.
1: All right, Paul Sandoval, thank you so much. And now to the Middle East and Israel's war against Hamas, exactly two months after the attack on October 7th. We have some disturbing new images from the war zone just into CNN. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is right on the scene there in Sderot, Israel, near Gaza. Uh, Jeremy, some viewers may find these images upsetting. We do want to warn our viewers, tell us what we know and don't know about them.
7: Well, Pamela, these images show the mass detention of dozens of Palestinian men by the Israeli military in the Gaza Strip. We don't know exactly when and where these images were taken, but some of them were geolocated by our team uh, at inside the town of Beit Lahia uh, in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. And while we don't know whether some of these men may be Hamas fighters, we know that all of them are not, and that's because some of these men have already been identified by their relatives, some of whom spoke with CNN. Uh, among them includes at least one journalist, a correspondent uh, for Al Arabiya Al Jadid. Uh, Who was identified by his employer uh, and they say uh, that he and several members of his family uh, were detained. Uh, You can see these men in these images. They are blindfolded. They have been stripped down to their underwear uh, and they are in some cases lying in the streets. Some of them have been taken then to uh, cargo uh, beds in the backs of military trucks. Um, One of the relatives of one of these men uh, said that he had simply followed orders to emerge from his house and then he was detained Obtained. CNN has reached out to the Israeli military for comment. They have not responded, but Daniel Hagari, an IDF spokesman, did say that the IDF investigates and checks who has ties to Hamas and who does not.
1: So, two months into this fighting, Jeremy, we should note it is the two months in. What is Israel saying about its progress in this war?
7: Well, the Israeli military says that it has uh, killed several senior Hamas commanders. They showed an image of 11 um, senior members of Hamas's Northern Brigade in a tunnel, and they say that five of those 11 uh, have been killed uh, in strikes, at least some of them killed in a strike on a tunnel infrastructure near the Indonesian hospital in Gaza. They also said that two other senior Hamas members were killed in a strike on Hamas's intelligence center. Uh, the Israeli military right now is focused very much. Much on the southern part of the Gaza Strip. We know that Israeli tanks, armor personnel carriers, and infantry are in the city of Khan Yunus. And behind me right now, you can still hear heavy bombardment and shelling uh, of parts of northern Gaza as well. So the fighting very much continuing in all parts of Gaza.
1: All right, Jeremy Diamond and Zerot Israel, thank you so much. And as the war enters a third month, the United Nations is warning of alarming levels of hunger in Gaza. CNN's Ben Wiedemann has more on the humanitarian crisis.
5: Isra was born the day the truce went into effect, seemingly so long ago. She lives with her parents and brother in a makeshift shelter in Der El Bela. It lacks the basics of life for the cold for the winter, says her mother, also named Isra. This young family is part of the 1.9 million people, 85 percent of Gaza's population, that has been displaced. Displaced, but still in danger. Smoke rises over Rafah, where so many fled to. Wednesday afternoon, this house in Rafah's refugee camp was bombed. Inevitably, in such a crowded place, Children were among the dead. (laughs) (laughs) There's no safe place in Gaza, says Iyad al-Hubbi. Any place can be hit. (laughs) The Palestinian health ministry says more than 20 people were killed in the strike, including 17 members from the same extended family. (laughs) They told them the South was safe. They came here, the safe place, and they were all killed, says Basam al-Hubbi. Death now stalks every corner of this land. In Han Yunis, the focus of Israel's current offensive, the hospital is overwhelmed with the injured. And yet more come. The World Health Organization's Gaza Envoy says they're doing what they can. But the health
12: infrastructure is on his knees. It's it's almost collapsing. That is what the, the reality is. It's almost collapsing.
5: Collapse, chaos, destruction and death. Such is Gaza's lot. Also collapsing are the UN's relief efforts in southern Gaza. Today, the UN emergency relief coordinator Martin Griffiths said that because of the disruption caused by the war, the program has become erratic undependable and in his words it's frankly unsustainable pamela
1: all right ben Wiedemann. thank you for that and let's get more on all of this with representative Alyssa slotkin a democrat who serves on the house armed services committee congressman thank you for your time um i first want to go to to these men in gaza who were detained and stripped down in their underwear you heard our jeremy diamond talk about that cnn spoke to family members who say that some of them are actually civilians what is your assessment of these pictures? Does this raise concerns to you that Israel isn't doing enough to discern between militants and civilians?
14: Yeah, I'm just seeing these pictures for the first time, and and obviously they're striking. Um, we're not used to seeing that, you know, people lined up um, without uh, hardly any clothes on. I'm trying to remember a time, just as someone who's a former CIA officer and Pentagon official who worked, you know, uh, three tours in Iraq alongside the military when when that practice was used. I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with one. And, and I think it's, it's part of this bigger conversation of how do you determine the difference between a civilian and a militant in an extremely crowded place? The United States had to deal with the same question, right? When we were in places like Ramadi and Fallujah in Afghanistan, it's one of the most difficult things to do um, and therefore requires extreme care on you know the part of the military that's that's launching these operations. And I think mm-hmm. that you're seeing that come out now here in the United States, this real debate about the, the, the types of tactics that are being used and whether a tactical victory actually equals strategic um, success for, for Israel when they're alienating, obviously, so many people going right. through pain in, in Gaza right
1: now. And, and to add to that, uh, you, know, you, you saw those deadly strikes um, in Rafa where civilians were told to flee you know, Israel is saying it's doing everything it can to limit civilian deaths, but do you think the actions are speaking louder than words here?
14: I mean, I think, look, the, the pictures are, are, I mean, extremely difficult to look at and to watch. And I, I think that um, democracies have special responsibilities in war to limit not only you know is it not okay to target civilians, but proportionality, right? If you're going after a militant, someone who legitimately organized this kind of horrific attack we saw on October 7th, I, I believe Israel has the right to go after those militants, the leaders, the funders, the organizers. Um, but you have to do such an incredible amount of work to make sure you're not uh, proportionally hitting way more civilians than you are militants, At that the militants you're going after are sort of worth um, the the risk to life that's going on there. So I, I think it's getting much more complicated. Um, it was complicated for the United States. We learned some really hard lessons in Iraq and Afghanistan. And my hope is that the Israeli government will learn those lessons, take them from us and bring them to a, a change of approach.
1: You mentioned you know democracies have responsibilities in war. And the bottom line is the U.S. has provided munitions to the Israeli military and Amnesty International, there's an investigation by them uh, that showed that two deadly airstrikes in October that killed 43 Gazan civilians in their homes, those U.S.-made munitions were used in those strikes. What obligations does the U.S. have to make sure its own weapons aren't killing civilians?
14: Yeah, well, I think this is the conversation that's been going on largely in private between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government and is now spilling into the public, right? We're starting to see both uh, on the record and on background um, uh, officials from the administration talking about the responsibilities the Israelis have on civilian casualties, on the use of these weapon systems. Um, That's a conversation that's frankly happening on Capitol Hill right now, right? Do we have... Um, you know, this this idea of conditions on assistance is a very live issue. We got a letter from senators today talking about it. So I, I think it's important that we um, remember that we have, again, special obligations when you're a democracy, that there are rules to how we do this. And I think the United States, you're hearing very clearly from Capitol Hill that this is going to be a conversation.
1: What do you think should happen then?
14: So I think, I think it's important to understand what is already in place. You know, I think we've been talking about conditions, frankly, all fall, not just for Israel, but for Ukraine, for all kinds of assistance. Coming from the Pentagon, there are legal requirements on the provision of AIDS to aid to any ally or partner. There are end-use monitoring requirements. How are they using those weapons, right? And there are rules around that. There are Leahy requirements, so human rights requirements. You can't give weapons to a unit that's had human rights violations. Um, Just this fall, uh, there were talk of conditions. uh, uh, You know, we've gotta cut a bunch of IRS agents in order to give Israel any assistance. So that issue of conditioning assistance has been with us. Um, And I'm ready to have that conversation. My bigger issue is, We're not really moving the ball on any aid right now. Negotiations are stuck. So let's have it. Let's move it. We need that assistance for Israel, for Ukraine, for a bunch of places. Um, And to me, that's the the first step is let's actually start negotiating. And then that conversation is going to play out.
1: All right, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, thank you. And happy Hanukkah to you. Thank you. Just ahead, a Texas judge is ruling in favor of a woman seeking an emergency abortion. We're going to tell you what that could mean for the state's strict limits on the procedure.
14: The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting
6: down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education.
14: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite
15: podcast app.
1: A Texas judge has ruled that a woman seeking a court-ordered abortion can legally terminate her pregnancy. But the Texas attorney general is warning that any doctors who perform the procedure could face legal jeopardy. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins us from Dallas. So, Ed, what happens next here?
10: Uh, well, it has uh, it really intensified here this afternoon. As uh, the attorneys for this woman, 31-year-old Kate Cox, say it is unforgivable that this mother, who is 20 weeks pregnant, had to go before a judge today and essentially, quote, beg for an abortion to protect her life and her future f- fertility. Um, Kate Cox is pregnant with uh, in 20 weeks, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, the baby has been diagnosed with a rare genetic uh, condition that essentially is fatal, uh, and that uh, the likelihood of the baby surviving more than a few hours is very unlikely. Uh, during this uh, res- temporary restraining order hearing, uh, the judge granted her the ability to, to have an abortion. This is believed to be one of the first cases like it since uh, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year the judge said the idea that Mrs. Cox wants desperately to be a parent and this law might actually cause her to lose the ability is shocking and would be a genuine miscarriage of justice. The attorney general here in Texas, Republican Ken Paxton, just a short while ago, uh, released a statement essentially threatening uh, the patient and the doctors possibly involved uh, in, in her getting an abortion, saying that the temporary restraining order will not insulate hospitals, doctors or anyone else from civil and criminal liability for violating texas's abortion laws so a very intense and complicated situation here for this case uh, involving kate cox a woman 20 weeks pregnant uh, here in texas right now pamela
1: certainly as you say uh, you know setting a precedent potentially ed lavendera thank you so much well coming up the biden administration is delaying a ban on menthol cigarettes why some critics say politics are behind this decision we'll be right back Well, tonight, the Biden administration is delaying a long-awaited ban on menthol-flavored cigarettes. CNN's Renee Marsh has this story.
3: We are extremely outraged.
15: Anger and disappointment from the NAACP directed at the Biden administration for slow-walking a ban on menthol-flavored cigarettes. For decades, tobacco companies have aggressively targeted minority communities with marketing, and it's been effective. More than 83% of black smokers choose menthols, and black people die at significantly higher rates of smoking-related illnesses.
10: If you
13: don't ban menthol flavor, you send it a clear message that black lives do not matter. It raised a real question, is this a discriminatory act by this administration to neglect the health concerns of the African-American community.
15: But the African-American community is divided on the issue. Government schedules show on November 20th, top administration officials met with prominent black leaders and representatives, including an executive with Al Sharpton's National Action Network. Also present were tobacco industry stakeholders and lobbyists, including former North Carolina Congressman G.K. Butterfield, now a tobacco industry lobbyist. All opposed the ban, saying it would lead to an illicit market and more deadly police encounters like Eric Garner, who was killed at the hands of New York. City Police for allegedly selling loose cigarettes.
3: It's becoming a political issue because of of black leaders Uh, trying to make it such you know you have black leaders that are taking the stand of tobacco companies rather than saving black lives
15: a ban would only allow the fda to regulate the sale and distribution of menthol cigarettes that means the enforcement would focus on retailers manufacturers and distributors not individuals in an election cycle conservative groups have seized the opportunity to capitalize on the issue biden's priority is banning
8: menthol cigarettes
15: zeroing in on a potential political liability for Biden. Their strategy includes more ads like this one. Republican Senator Tom Cotton tweeting, Joe Biden wants to ban menthol cigarettes, which are favored by black smokers. Meanwhile, he wants to legalize weed for white college kids. Public health groups say the Biden administration is putting politics over people. There's just no reason for this delay, and only one can conclude as cynically that the industry has had an influence on the administration's decision. All right, and you know, all other flavored cigarettes were banned actually under the Obama administration except for menthol. And the White House has not been very clear on their reasoning for this delay, but Republicans, they, are, they see this as an opening, and they're continuing to strategize and create more ads on this very issue.
1: Yeah, like you said, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, for one. All right, Renee Marsh, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Finally tonight, one of the Israeli military's biggest targets is a top Hamas leader in Gaza who's accused of being a mastermind behind the October 7th assault. Brian Todd takes a closer look at his background.
9: One of Israel's top targets, the man they call the face of evil, Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's highest-ranking leader inside Gaza. Top Israeli officials have sounded very confident in recent days that they'll kill him, saying their forces have encircled his house in southern Gaza.
3: His house is not his fortress, and he can escape. But it's only a matter of time until we get him.
9: Without elaborating, Israeli officials say they believe Sinwar is underground. Such is the existence of the 61-year-old who's imprinted his hatred of Israel into the identity of Hamas. Analysts say as one of Hamas's top masterminds of the October 7th attacks.
6: Yahya Sinwar to Israel is what bin Laden is to the United States. And like Americans went after bin Laden and eventually got him, I think the Israelis will do the same, and this war
9: will not end until they get Sinwar. Sinwar joined Hamas in his 20s. Arrested by the Israelis for the murders of two Israeli soldiers and four Palestinians, he spent 23 years in an Israeli prison, learned Hebrew, and it was during that period that the Israelis actually saved his life.
6: A tumor was discovered in his head. Israeli doctors operated on him, took the tumor out, and he survived.
9: Michael Kubi, a former officer of Israel's Shin Bet security agency, says he interrogated Yahya Sinwar for a total of about 180 hours. Kubi says he knows Sinwar better than Sinwar's own mother and describes him as the cruelest man he ever met, known to use a machete to kill Palestinians who were suspected of collaborating with Israeli intelligence. I asked him, you are now 28, 29, and how come he's not married? How come he
12: doesn't want a family? So he told me the Hamas is my wife, the Hamas is my child, The Hamas for me is everything.
9: Sinwar was among more than a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners released in 2011 in exchange for captured Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit. Just last year, he seemed to warn Israel what was coming.
7: We will come to you, God willing, in a roaring flood. We will come to you with an endless number of rockets. We will come to you in a flood of soldiers without limit. We will come to you with millions of our nation... Analysts
9: say the man who survived an Israeli assassination attempt in 2021 won't be easy to kill this time either.
6: If there's someone who's passing on information to the Israelis, he usually knows who they are and he takes them out before the Israelis get to him.
9: Analyst Hussein Abdul Hussein says if and when the Israelis eliminate Yahya Sinwar it's unlikely that whoever might try to fill those shoes will be as brutal as Sinwar but even if it's someone more moderate he says it really won't matter given how determined that Israel is to take out all of Hamas's leadership. Pamela.
1: That's a good point. Brian Todd thanks so much. I'll have Pamela Brown in the Situation Room and we're wishing a happy first night of Hanukkah to those who celebrate. Aaron Burnett out front starts now.